Well, good evening. Thanks for braving the rain and coming out. Glad you're here for our last study in the book of Amos. So take your Bibles, please, and turn to Amos chapter 9. We come to the last chapter tonight. Our subject is really taken from the last words, the last verses of the prophet Amos. I will plant them upon their land. I will plant them upon their land. And we find that in the closing, the closing verses of this chapter. Remember, in the first three chapters of Amos, we have a revelation about the Lord's coming. And the Lord was pictured to us as a lion that roars. And so we've entitled this study on Amos, Justice Roars. It's hungry. It's ready to do a devastating work. You don't have to worry about a lion if it's not roaring. If it's roaring, it means it's hungry. It's ready to eat something. And the punishment of Israel's enemies we saw, the ones that surrounded her, was seen very clearly to us. And even the people of God were punished. He mentions briefly in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the southern kingdom, Judah, which is not the main focus of the prophet Amos. The main focus, remember, is the northern ten tribes of Israel. The kingdom is split at this time. Ten in the north, two in the south. And in the north, they followed pagan gods and all of their idolatry and immorality. And we looked at the reasons for the Lord's coming judgment. And we've been looking at this over the last several weeks. And Amos is one of the only prophets that tells us why, specifically, why God is going to judge his people. And it sounds very contemporary to our current society. And so we looked at these reasons for the coming judgment of the Lord. And that goes from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way to chapter 9, and it ends in verse 10. And then the last five verses talk about the restoration of Israel. And so just quick review here tonight, we talked about these reasons, and in chapter 4 we saw the reasons, the first reason was the return to the Lord did not happen. The return to the Lord did not happen. And God was going to be judgment upon them because they didn't return to Him. In spite of all the prophets coming and telling them to return to the Lord before it's too late, it was Amos, it was Hosea, others did the same thing, return to the Lord, but they didn't do it. And so the judgment's coming. And secondly, we saw the refusal to seek the Lord. And it was rather obvious in chapter 5, in those 27 verses there. They simply did not seek Him. Even though the prophets continued to tell them, seek the Lord and you will find Him. He's gracious, He's kind, He's forgiving. But they refused. And even though He was long-suffering with them, and He gave them plenty of opportunity to repent, they would not do it. And so judgment is coming. Nothing's going to stop it at this point. Thirdly, their reliance upon themselves would prove to be a disaster, as it always does. We saw that in chapter 6. Whenever we rely upon ourselves solely and not on God, it ends in disaster. And they thought basically that, wow, you know what? We're in this fortress. We're at ease in Zion, we were told. And uh, they thought that their fortress would never fall. And they became complacent. They became indifferent to God. And again, that gave him another reason to bring judgment. The fourth reason was the resistance to the message of the prophet would bring judgment upon the Lord. 
uh, of the, the judgment of the Lord upon them in Amos chapter 7. And we saw that they were resistant to the prophet's message. The whole destruction of Judah and the end of the old, uh, the Jewish Old Testament, which is 2 Chronicles 36, that chapter is the last chapter in the, the Jewish Old Testament. It tells us that they mocked the messengers of God. And the prophets would not uh, listen to them anymore, and, and they wouldn't listen to the prophets anymore. And so God said that there was no longer any remedy. He told them, look, I gave you a message. You're, you're rejecting it. It's like in Luke chapter 16, we talked about last Sunday, when the rich man ended up in hell, and he's pleading with the Lord to send somebody back to warn his brothers so they won't come here. And Jesus said, listen, if they will not hear Moses and who? And the prophets. They won't believe even one who came back from the dead. What's God saying? I already gave them what they needed. And they rejected it. And then the fifth thing was their respect for the poor and needy was neglected and uh, abused. And we saw that in chapter 8. Whenever a prosperous society, whenever a blessed society feels that they don't need to help out and give someone a hand, who is less privileged than they are, that's really evident that the seeds of decay are there in the heart. And that's condemned in no uncertain terms in Amos 8. We saw that last week. Well, that brings us to tonight, Amos 9, the closing chapter. We come to this and this indictment. The last reason is given to us in the first 10 verses. Amos is basically bad news, the whole book. It's just full of judgment until you get to the last five verses, and then we get a little reprieve, and we hear some good news. But in the opening ten verses of this chapter, their rebellion would not hide them from the Lord. Their rebellion would not hide them from the Lord. That's the reason, the final reason. You know, sometimes when we're not walking with the Lord, when you've gotten far away from Him, and somehow we begin to believe that, well, he doesn't mind and he doesn't ma it doesn't matter anymore to God and he's not really watching us. And we almost believe we're hiding from God, that he's actually not seeing what we're doing. And what we're going to find tonight is that's impossible. You're going to see that very clearly in the text tonight. And at the end, there's a triumphant section of this book, the last part of it, and that's a glorious section, and we'll spend a little time in that. The last five verses in which the restoration of Israel is taught. So let's look at our text and read it, and you can follow along in your Bibles, and I'll read this for us, and then we'll get into our pray and get into our study. Amos chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people, and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Verse 4. For if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. For the Lord 
God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. Verse six, who builds his chamber, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his fault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Verse 7, are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up from Israel, from the land of Egypt and the Philistines, from the from uh, Kaftor and the Syrians, from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except, look at this, that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. And then we come to the last five verses, which is finally a blessing. We've been hearing judgment, judgment, judgment ad nauseum, this whole study. Finally, we see the restoration of Israel. Verse 11, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, name declares the Lord who does this. Verse 13, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Verse five, the last verse. I will plant them on their land. That's where I got the title for the message. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know that we need to hear this message from Amos. Our culture, our country, the nations of the world clearly have turned their back on you and act as if you won't do anything, that you don't care. But Lord, you said that fire and earthquake and stormy wind will all be used to fulfill your word as tools of your hand. You are the one in control of all the processes of nature and all the armies of the world and all of the kings. For you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we rejoice as we read in the book of Revelation in chapter 11 that one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Messiah, and we shall reign forever and ever. Lord, we thank you for our hope in Christ, a hope that is going beyond the grave and a hope that is for God. I pray you'd speak to our hearts tonight that we know that you're the God who has promised us these things and that you will fulfill it. We thank you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. One of the most interesting things about Amos is his reference to biblical illustrations as we've gone through this study. And they're very simple. They're very simple phrases. And it kind of shows you that Amos was a man of the people. 
He wasn't heady. He wasn't a well-educated rabbinical scholar or anything like that. He doesn't talk that way. Now, it may seem difficult for you in reading it in English, but it's very simple language because Hebrew is not a big language. It's a small language. It only has 22 letters. It had no vowels until the 19th century A.D. And so sometimes the pronunciations were different among the different groups. It's a very simple language. It's a beautiful language. It's very flexible. That's not so true of the New Testament language, Greek. The Greek of the New Testament is uh, precise. It's grammatical. It's almost mathematical in its presentation. But Hebrew is poetic. It's beautiful. And so what Amos does here, he's simply a shepherd, a farmer who gathers sycamore fruit off the ground. What he does is he speaks in the language of the average person. He speaks the way they would speak, the things they would say. And there's a lot of common illustrations and references to other biblical material, which is, again, a reminder that the Bible is all integrated together. When it quotes a verse from somewhere else, God's working this all together. God has blended it all together. And so these prophets, they'll quote from each other, New Testament, from the Old Testament. And here's an example. He says in verse 1, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Well, you can look into that phrase, do a word study, and do a Bible study on that, and you'll spend several hours there because there's so much material on I saw the Lord. He says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Now, this is quite a vision for Amos, this farmer, this shepherd. Now, remember, he's had a number of visions. We've gone over them. We looked last week at two of those visions, the, gra- the locusts or the grasshoppers that were going to, uh, he had a vision of them devouring everything. And he also had a, divi- a vision of fire consuming everything. But God said, you know what? I could do this as judgment. I could wipe these people out tomorrow, but I'm not going to do it. These visions will not come to fruition. God said that I won't do it. I could, I could because I'm all-powerful, but I'm not going to do it because I simply made a promise that I would never destroy every, la- every last one of my people. I'm going to judge you, but I won't destroy you all. And so he gave the illustration, remember last week, of a plumb line, kind of like a measurement. And basically, we understood that God would bring judgment, but the judgment would not be total. He's not going to wipe everyone out. He's going to, his goal is to refine them. It even says here in chapter 9, like a sieve. You know, when you use a sieve, when you pour something through a sieve, you're trying to refine that mixture. You're trying to take certain ingredients out. But here he gives this illustration of purifying his people. And he gives a very interesting illustration. And I want to tell you why. If you turn over to 1 Kings chapter 12, 1 Kings chapter 12. Now, the king that's mentioned here throughout his book in Amos, uh, sometimes he doesn't mention his name particular, is, is Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II, who was a very, very uh, wicked king. And he did, the Bible says, that which was evil in the sight of the Lord continuously almost. All of the Israeli kings were wicked, by the way, not just Jeroboam II. The only ones who uh, did that which was right before the eyes of the Lord were some of the kings, some of the kings of Judah. Not all of them, but some of them did. 
Jeroboam II, of course, when you say Jeroboam II, that presumes that there was what? Uh, right, a Jeroboam I. And Jeroboam I, the son of Nabat, is the one who caused the rebellion that Solomon's uh, son had to face. And the kingdom was split. In the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin went their way, and the ten northern tribes went with Jeroboam I. And the first thing he did is he set up these two gigantic altars, one at Dan, the northernmost part. It's still there, Tel Dan, it's called today. You can go visit it historically if you go over to the Middle East, Israel. And at Bethel, which is just a little ways, maybe 30-minute drive north of Jerusalem. So he had these two places kind of spread out that he set up these altars. The northern one, Bethel, was on the edge of what was Judah and Ephraim. And Ephraim and the northern tribe of Judah being the southern part. And so he, he set up the, the golden calves that they were worshiping, worshiping at Mount Sinai. And remember that he, he's the one that led Israel into sin. And the Bible says that several times he led them to commit the Bible calls them abominations, to follow gods of the world around them, pagan gods, and to get involved in all the immorality and the idolatry. Well, there's something interesting here. Remember that Amos is preaching to the northern tribes. He's up there preaching to the northern tribes. Well, look at what it says in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 32. This is interesting. 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 32. And Jeroboam, the first, that is, appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 18th month like the feast that was in Judah. That's not one that was supposed to happen. He just picked a date and said, I'm going to set up a feast. And he offered sacrifices on the altar, the altars that he set up. And so he did in Bethel. He did it in, in Judah. He did it in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. Chapter 13, verse 1. Look at what it says. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Let me ask you, who was that? It's interesting that when we learned, started the book of Amos, we found out that Amos came out of Judah. He came from Tekoa. Now, this couldn't be Amos, could it? No, this is Jeroboam the first, but keep reading. What's it say? Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. In other words, what's he doing? This king is proclaiming himself a priest. You can't do that. That violates God's principles. The priest is the only one who can really do this. But he took over this priesthood, and he said, you know what? I want everybody to worship me. I want everybody to honor me. And so the story is interesting to me. He says he stood on the altar and he burned incense. It seems to me that what we have back in Amos 9 is really the counterfeit replaced by the real. See, what Jeroboam did back in Kings was counterfeit. So instead of Jeroboam the first standing on the altar and acting like he is the priest, Guess who's standing there in Amos? Go back to Amos chapter 9. Our high priest, our great high priest, our Lord, 
the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah. He is the one standing on the altar. It says that was the vision that God gave to Amos. I find that very interesting. You couldn't help if you lived in that day, if you heard Amos say these things, you would make that connection. You would say, wait a minute, didn't Jeroboam do this? Wasn't Jeroboam the imposter? He tried to come in and, and, and do what the priest did? And so now Amos is saying, no, there's one standing. I saw the Lord standing by the altar. And they make the connection. And so I want to give you a, a heading here as we begin to look at these verses. In verses 1 to 10 of Amos 9, we can see here the rebellion would not hide them from the Lord. This is the, the last reason, remember? The rebellion would not hide them from the Lord. And the, the heading here, really, I want to put this all under this heading, the impossibility of escaping the judgment of the Lord. The impossibility of escaping the judgment of the Lord. You know, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The first thing I see here under the heading, the impossibility of escaping the judgment of the Lord, is the position of the Lord himself. Look at what it says in verse 1. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. This is the position of the Lord. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 30, this is interesting. Jacob, you remember, had an experience. He wrestled with that man all night long. Remember that story? You probably learned about it in Sunday school. And it says in Genesis chapter 32, verse 30 and 31, so Jacob called the name of that place where he had this wrestling match, Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The vision was a manifestation of who the Lord is. And we believe this to be the Messiah himself because it's Adonai, not Yahweh. It's Adonai, not Yahweh. The earthly Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the word for Messiah. So you could say, I saw the Lord Adonai standing on the altar. Now, when you read that, your mind should probably drift over to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. You remember those verses? In the year that King Uzziah died, what's Isaiah say? His vision was what? I saw the Lord. There it is again, that phrase, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I think that this vision also is referring to that. Why? We'll keep reading. We not only see the position of the Lord, but the second thing here is the picture of the coming judgment. Look at what it says in verse 1 the picture of the coming judgment. Strike the capitals until the thresholds or the posts shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. Here he is pictured at the tabernacle or the temple that he has constructed in Samaria and all of its counterfeit. Maybe it's at Bethel where there was also a structure where the golden calf was. He's addressing these these false, these counterfeit places of worship. And it says that when Amos saw the Lord, the Lord said to him, you smite it and the post will shake. 
If you remember in Isaiah 6, when he said, I saw the Lord seated on the, on the, on the throne, if you read down a couple of verses to verse 3 of Isaiah 6, listen to what it says. And then another one called to another one saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's a term that's used of the Messiah of Israel 245 times. The Lord of hosts. And he goes on, he says, the whole earth is full of his glory. We know that verse. But look at the next verse, 4. This is interesting. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So here we have in the opening verse of Amos, chapter 9, verse 1, this spectacular vision. And it's really to culminate all of this talk about coming judgment and to let everybody know Look, the judgment is coming, and to be very clear, hear, hear me who is going to be behind the judgment. Who is going to do the judgment? Guess what? It's the Messiah of Israel. That's who is behind all this judgment. Even though Assyria would exercise the will of God, and they're, they're the ones that come against Israel physically, but God is using them. As Isaiah says, he is able to bring his tool or his weapon from afar to execute his judgment upon his people. And that's exactly what he did. So who's really the one behind all of this judgment? It's the Messiah of Israel, our blessed Lord. Well, that's the position of the Lord. And you see the picture of the coming judgment. He's smiting this. He's killing them. It's just unbelievable. There's one other thing, not only the position and picture, but the pursuit of the Lord in bringing his judgment upon them. Look at what it says in verse, the end of verse 1. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Look at what it says. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. Wow. I want you to remember the overall heading of this first, these first four verses. We're talking about the rebellion of his people that will not allow them to hide from God. And I'll tell you tonight, if you're not walking with God, guess what? You're not hiding from him. He knows all about it. He knows everything you're thinking. He knows everything you're doing. Nothing is hid from his presence, the word of God says. All things are naked and open into the eyes of him with whom we have to deal. Hebrews 4.13 and this comes under the impossibility of escaping the judgment of the Lord. He is going to carry it out. He will do it. In addition to seeing the position of the Lord and the picture and the pursuit of the Lord, look at this, the problem of trying to hide from the coming judgment of the Lord. This is an issue. This is a problem, verse 2 to 4. There's a couple things here. There's five illustrations. See, when you try to hide from the Lord, this is not a good thing. It never is. And you can read through this text of verses 2 to 4. You can follow along here, and I'll just point them out to you so you can see. And they're very easy to spot, these five illustrations, because they all, be, depending on your translation, they either start with if, if, or though. In my translation, they start with if. So in verse 2, it says, if they dig into Sheol. Verse 2, if they climb up to heaven. Verse 3, if they hide themselves on top of Carmel. Verse 3, if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea. 
And then in verse 4, if they go into captivity before their enemies. See, he's giving conditions here. He's giving illustrations. If these things happen, though this thing happens, it does, it's not going to make any difference. Because there's two things that are true here. Number one, there is no place where you can hide. There is no place. There's no place. If they dig into Sheol or hell, if they climb up to heaven, if they hide themselves at the top of Carmel, if they hide themselves at the bottom of the sea, if they go into captivity. See, these are five illustrations to tell me God is telling us, I don't care where you go, the Lord says here that you will never be able to hide from my sight. Do you remember back in the Garden of Eden? Perhaps this is the saddest verses in the Bible, really, that you could read uh, coming from the lips of our God. In the Garden of Eden, when God had to say, where are you? <laughs> remember that? Where are you? Where art thou? Those Adam and Eve who had walked, they fellowshiped, with God in the garden, the Bible says, in the cool of the day. And now they're trying to hide. They're trying to hide in their shame and their disgrace and their sin. And they're trying to hide from their God, the God who created them. And here comes that voice of the Lord, where are you? May I say that not only is it a sense of coming judgment because when we do wrong, we like to hide. That's the negative side of this. But you also see grace and you see mercy. The idea that the Lord here, I see the Lord saying, I'm still here. Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? I've never left. I'm still here walking in the garden. Where are you? Where have you gone? He's longing for that fellowship. And you look at those illustrations, if, 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 five of them there. He's saying, you know what, even though you, you go to any of these places, there's no place to hide, none whatsoever. And there's a second thing here, too. There's not only the idea that there's a, uh, no place to hide, but also there is no possibility of escaping the hand, or you could say the power of the Lord, verse 2. There's no way you're going to escape it. Look at what he says in verse 2, my hand, my hand. And then he goes on, and he goes through all these verses, 2 through 4, I will bring them down. I will search them out. Verse 3, I will command the serpent. Verse 4, I will command the sword. Who do you think is behind all the difficulties that sometimes we run into in life when we're trying to run away from God. Who's behind it? Very simply, the Lord is behind it. Is he trying to wipe you out? Is he trying to hunt you down? Was he trying to find Adam and Eve just to kill them? No, not at all. What's he doing? He's disciplining, he's chastening, you could say, his people. Why? What's the reason? So they will turn back to him. That's his desire. Hebrews 12.5 says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, 
nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord loves whom he chastens. He loves you. He, he, he allows things to come into your life and in my life that sometimes are unpleasant that sometimes we don't want to deal with, that we're not comfortable dealing with. We don't want to. But it's all part of his plan. Sometimes it's not because even we're doing anything wrong. Maybe he's allowing the enemy to attack us. Like he allowed the enemy to attack Job in the Old Testament. It was Job who said, though he slay me, what? Right? Yet will I trust him. It was Job who said to his friends who were trying to give him counsel, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? I have nowhere else to go. I can't hide from God. The Bible says that in all of, all of his trials, all of the tests that were put before Job, he, it says he never sinned with his lips. Isn't that amazing? He never sinned with his lips. He never called into question the faithfulness of God, but his friends kept insinuating that somehow he had sinned. Job, this wouldn't be happened to you, you know, unless there's something wrong in your spiritual life. What do you do to God? You know, he's getting you. Why is God judging you, Job? Look, you know, you've lost your whole family. You lost all your houses. You lost all your possessions, all your flocks. Now you're sitting on an ash heap, covering yourselves. You're covered with boils. You're scraping your, your skin. You're sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And even your own wife just tells you, you know what, just curse God and die. Wow. Lovely lady. All of Job said through all of that, the only thing he said was this, miserable comforters are you all. In other words, you know what, you're really not helping me out here, guys. But God had something that he wanted to teach Job. You know, if you read Job and you don't understand his circumstance and, and what he went through, then you know what? You're not going to understand what God is putting his people through here in, in Amos. You have to understand God's judgment is not to finish us off. It's not to making, making us a, a laughingstock before the world. The Bible tells us that in the end, God blessed Job twice as much in the end of his life than he did at the beginning. And he was a very, very blessed man. In Psalm 76, it says, God can take the wickedness of man and praise his name. See, he uses all these things for his glory. It doesn't matter what you face. All the pressures of life, all the difficulties of life, all the attacks that come at us sometimes, even the accusations, all of it, God can bring into our lives these things why does he do this? Why does he allow these things in our lives to, to wear us down, to make us weak, to destroy us? No, not at all. To make us stronger so that we will be able to stand and say, you know what? The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my salvation. He is my deliverer in whom I trust. There's lessons to be learned here, big ones from the book of Amos. There's no place to hide. There's no possibility of escaping the hand of judgment. You remember in Psalm 139, 
It continually talks about the presence of God. In verse 7, I just want to read this, verse 7 to 12, Psalm 139. The psalmist writes and he says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or, Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall, what's it say? Punish me? Shall drown me? Shall end my life? No, he doesn't say that. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day. For darkness is as light to you. See, we have to understand when we have situations in our life that we don't really feel comfortable with, and they're not fun to deal with, trials and tribulations, tests that come our way, you have to understand the basic principle. God will lead you through the storm. Do you believe that? Does he lead you through the storm? There's a beautiful song, a hymn. We don't sing it much anymore, called God Leads Us Along. And one of the choruses says this, Some through the waters, some through the flood. Some through the fire, I like this, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all day long. Maybe you're here tonight and you're saying, you know what, Pastor, I've never suffered like that. I've never even had any suffering. Well, cheer up, you will. It's just a matter of time. We're all going to go through it. Because it's God's plan. He promises it. It's going to come in all of its little intricate ways. Sometimes it could be a health issue. Sometimes it could be a financial issue or problem. Have you ever been busy trying to serve the Lord and you're just trying to get something done for Him? Maybe you're studying, maybe you're doing whatever, and something just hits you out of the blue and falls in your lap and messes everything up. You didn't anticipate it. You didn't see it coming. And you think, why did this happen? The other day I was trying to get this study done and had a lot of things going on, had several appointments throughout the day. And so my day was just kind of broken up. And the one appointment was supposed to start at 10 o'clock and that was canceled, moved to one o'clock. And then Shelly and I had an appointment on the phone, on a, a, a Zoom call with the guy for the church app. And that was at 1230. And then I had to, take some stuff home, and so I've been running back and forth, get done with the call with the Zoom guy, and the guy calls, hey, I'm at the house here, I'm on my way back, and just the whole day, and then at four o'clock, we had a contractor come by the house, so I had to be back home. And I'm thinking, Lord, I just want to study, I just want to try to get this study done. It was probably two and a half hours of time taken waiting around for things to happen. And I thought, why? Why am I, why does this happen? Maybe because the Lord wants us to understand that it happens to all of us. This is life. The Bible says the Lord reigns on the just as well as the unjust. Shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord, Job said, and not receive trouble? Who do we think we are? They're both coming from his hand. And I guarantee you, if you decide that you're not going to walk with God, guess what? He loves you too much to just let you go down that path. 
He's not going to allow that. He's going to try to stop you. It may come because there's trouble in your heart. Or you know what? It could simply come as a test to see whether or not you're going to fold under pressure. God is pushing you to grow in your, your faith of Him, in Him. Do not think that yours truly doesn't think about folding up from time to time when stuff happens. But you know what? At the end of the day, I look back and I think, you know what? God's over all this, every bit of it, no matter what it is. I hope you believe that. In the, old, in the New Testament, remember the story where the parents bring the poor blind boy and say, and they, they kind of say, well, who sinned, you know, him or his parents? Why is he this way? And Jesus' answer is very telling. He said, neither one of them did. What are you talking about? It's nothing to do with sin. This is all about the glory of God, that it might be manifested in him. See, this is what God wants. Sometimes God allows harsh things into our life, hard things, because he wants glory in our lives. And sometimes he brings a lot of stuff, junk, to see whether or not we're still going to praise him in spite of that. It's really easy to praise God when everything's going right, isn't it? When the, you got money left over in the checkbook at the end of the month and health has been good, work's been good, marriage is good, kids are good. Everything. Oh, it's easy to trust the Lord then. But then things start to fall apart. The wheels fall off the cart. Then all of a sudden, a little fear sets in. A little anxiety sets in. Amen? And you can be literally intimidated by your circumstances. You can be fearful. I'll tell you, I have a nightmare probably once a month. And it just bothers me. I'll just tell you what it is. It's kind of silly, but you might think, oh, this is weird. I'm sitting at the piano in church. It's about 9.58. Service starts at 10. And I realize a couple of things. The church is full. Everybody's excited to start worship. I look up. I look at the piano. I have no worship music in front of me. As a matter of fact, I haven't picked out any worship music. There's nothing loaded in the computer for the lyrics in the back. There's no music on the stands of musicians. There's no lyrics in front of the, the singers. And I'm sitting there like, how did this happen? How could I not be prepared? And I start to panic in my dream. And I, what am I going to do? And it's this reoccurring nightmare that I have. And I kind of I, I go back to the, the booth and I'm trying to find a song and get the sheet music. And it's just mayhem. And I wake up in a cold sweat and then I realize, oh, wait, this is just a dream. And I often think, Lord, why, why do I think about that? Why does that continually come into my mind? Sometimes there's things that come into our lives. We don't know why. It's one of those basic theological questions that maybe we don't really have the answer to. Questions like, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, right? Well, see, in this case, God is anxious that they know he wants them to understand that you do not sin. You do not become rebellious before me and not face the judging hand of God. 
There's no possibility of escaping that. Now, that's the problem of trying to hide from God. But at the end of verse 4, a very important point, the purpose of the Lord will not be thwarted or stopped. Look at what he says at the end of verse 4. He's not going to be stopped. His purpose won't be thwarted. you understand that? He says, and I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. In other words, you cannot stop God when he decides to bring his judgment. And this is under that heading, the impossibility of hiding from God. And the Lord is set in contrast to Jeroboam when he stood at the altar. And the Lord is saying, no, I'm standing here now. I'm not a counterfeit. I'm the real deal. And you know what? When I speak, I'm going to make this place shake. And they'll know who I am. And it doesn't matter where you go. You're not going to escape me. You can go to heaven, earth, under the earth, floods, seas, top of Carmel, wherever. I'm going to track you down. I know where you're at. They will never escape me. That's what I want you to tell them, Amos. Go ahead. Tell them. Well, that brings us to verses 5 and 6. The first point was the impossibility of trying to hide from God. The second point is this, the inability of anyone facing the power of the Lord. The inability of anyone facing off with the power of the Lord. I don't care how strong you think you are, nobody can stand up against the Lord. No one, period. Look at what it says in verse 5. The Lord, God of hosts, that's his title. He who touches the earth and it melts. Think of that. You just touch the earth and it melts. Well, I see two simple things here in verses 4 and 5. First of all, you see his true identity. His true identity should make that obvious. Verse. 5 and 6. Verse 5, he calls himself the Lord of hosts. At the end of verse 6, he says, the one who does this is the Lord is his name. The Lord is his name. The Lord God of hosts. First, his true identity would always make this obvious to us. He's the Lord of armies, or the Lord of hosts, you could say. The Lord is his name. The Hebrew is Adonai, Sabaoth. The Lord is his name. And what he's trying to tell us is no one can stand up to him. And he is the one who's standing above the altar in Amos chapter 9, in, in Amos' vision, the Messiah of Israel, the King of kings, the Lord of lords the one who can unleash thousands of his holy angels anytime he wants or ignore them completely and allow them to be spectators when he just snaps his fingers and creates the heavens and the earth. And with those same fingers, he could snap them and destroy everything. That's our Lord. Amen? All-powerful. Not only is true identity his true identity should make it obvious that everyone is unable to face his power. By the way, in, in verse 6, when he says the Lord of hosts there, uh, or verse 5, Amos calls God the Lord of hosts nine times. Nine times. A.W. Tozer said this. Listen to this quote. 
The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. Think about that. The essence of idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is the entertaining, entertainment of thoughts about God that are not worthy of Him. I'm thoroughly convinced that most Christians that have issues in the Christian life do so because they don't understand who God is, and they don't understand the proper relationship that they have with Him as one of His children. And so they're susceptible to attacks from the enemy, the flesh, the devil. See, this is why he has Amos saying this. You know what? You tell them who sent you. You tell him, tell them who is standing by the throne. It's the Lord of hosts. The Lord is his name. Not only his true identity should make that obvious, but number two, his continual involvement in creation and his control should tell us of his enormous power. Look at these two verses here and just look at some of what he is capable of doing. Verse 5, the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and makes it melt. Wow. Verse 6, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens, who founds his vault upon the earth. It says, who calls for the waters of seas. And then what's he do with them? He just pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. The Lord is his name. Enormous power that our God has. There's nothing that he cannot do. And all of this is given to this final vision from to Amos. And what is it given to him for? It's basically given to him to tell us, you know what, you can't hide from God. And it's time to get right with the Lord. You're not going to avoid this. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord. In Hebrews 12, it points out very clearly that he doesn't judge us to punish us. He does it for our profit, that we may bear more fruit. He wants us to be more productive in our Christian lives. Sometimes we cross the line and we get into apostasy as they did here. We don't want anything to do with the Lord. I've had Christian friends in my life that I went to college with, Bible college with, that I respected. They were incredible preachers. They were incredible students of the Word of God. A lot of an intellectual power in their little brains. Amazing. I would just sit there in awe as they teach in chapel, thinking, man, I wish I could do that only to find out today, what are they doing? They're not doing anything for the Lord. They're selling insurance somewhere. They've totally walked away from the Lord. I cannot understand that. These are guys I went to school with, that I looked up to. See, we have to understand that little line between those who are true and genuinely born again, and those who may say all the right things and sometimes can program themselves to look good around Christians. That line, beloved, is very thin. Very thin. And this should be a warning to all of us. Because the Bible itself tells us clearly, examine yourself whether you're in the faith or not. What's that mean? It means don't play games with God. God knows everything anyway. 
You can't hide from him. His power is so unbelievable. No, no one can possibly handle it when he decides to exercise his judgment against us. You're not going to withstand it. And guess what? He does it for the individual. He does it for the nation, as he did here in the ten tribes. Let me ask you a question. Is he going to do it to America? I wonder. How long will his long suffering go on? While we here in this nation and even in the world basically have generation after generation who have turned their back on him completely. They want their freedom without any limitations whatsoever. Today's culture, what's right is wrong and what's wrong is right. It's so mixed up. We're not in a, a moral crisis. We're in a moral collapse, beloved. Morality has collapsed, collapsed around us. You know it, I know it. I mean, wow, that's incredible. Well, the third thing here is not just the impossibility of escaping the judgment of the Lord or the inability of anyone facing his power, but the third thing very clearly is the illustration of their relationship to the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 7. Very important. It's very interesting what he says here. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? What did he mean by that? You're no different than they are. He says, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and also the Philistines from Kaftor, probably the island of, uh, of Crete, Kaftor, that's what that is. And then he says, and the Syrians from Kerr. What's he doing? He's saying, you're no different than these other people. That's how they got to Damascus. So why do you think you're any different? Now, some people read this and say, oh, this is evidence that you know, Israel doesn't matter anymore. You know, replacement theology kind of stuff. It doesn't matter. They're no longer the apple of God's eye. And so it doesn't matter what we do with Israel politically or militarily or, or spiritually. It doesn't matter anymore. See, it says right here that God doesn't treat Israel any better than he treats anyone else. But that's not the point of the passage. They're missing the whole point. Context, context, context. The point that God is saying here is he's going to tell you that he does treat his people differently. But the point here is that many times, I think, in our own arrogance, in our own relationship to the Lord, we think that we are so secure that somehow we can do whatever we want to do. And God still has to bless us. That God still has to love us. We can treat people wrongly. We can say things we ought not to say. We can let our anger go into a rage. We're all guilty of that. You're guilty, I'm guilty. Many times we just lose it. I mean, who do we think we are? Sometimes we think somehow that, that God's nature will change all of a sudden when we become one of his people, when we become a Christian, when we're following Christ that God's nature will change for us now because we have a relationship with him. No, that's not the case. See, the point of this passage is the Philistines were enemies of Israel. But he said, you know what? I'm the one that brought them up to be your enemies from Crete. 
just in case you wondered how they got there, Israel, I'm the one that brought them into your back door. And I brought the Syrians into Damascus. And guess what? The Syrians, <laughs> they've been troubling Israel all the way down through history. Even to this present day, they're still Israel's most dangerous northern foe. They tell us that maybe their army is now one of the fourth largest in the world. They now have thermal nuclear missiles lined up on the northern border of Israel. Obviously, Israel's very concerned about it. They should be. But they've always been concerned about Syria. Syria has always been their enemy. And God is saying, can you imagine being an Israeli in Samaria, thinking that no one could ever conquer this beautiful city, this fortress on a hill, with its ivory palaces and so forth, all the prosperous prosperity they had and the blessings. And here comes this prophet, Amos, speaking about judgment. Who does this guy think he is? He's uneducated. He doesn't have any education. He's, he's not even from our area. He's not even from our town. He's from Judah, Tekoa. Who ever heard of that place? He's just a shepherd. And he doesn't lead his sheep. The sheep lead him. <laughs> he's the lowest of the low. He picks up fruit off the ground. Who does he think he is coming in here and telling us that we're not Ethiopians and, 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 but, and nothing but uh, Assyrians, nothing but Philistines? Who does he think he is? See, beloved, sometimes we think, well, because I'm a believer in the Lord, that's going to change the nature of God on how God deals with things but it does not. <laughs> Do you understand that? God does not change. The Bible says, I am the Lord. I change not. Guess what? God still hates sin, whether it's in the life of the unbeliever or it's in the life of the believer. He still hates it. Now, he may operate a little differently with both, obviously, if we're trusting in Christ's forgiveness for our sins, we're not going to pay the penalty for our own sin because Christ already paid that. So one, he might punish and destroy if they don't believe in him, and the other, he might chasten, he might discipline, he might draw them to repentance and turn to him. But his nature doesn't change. He's still a God of justice. He's still a God of holiness and judgment. And it's really a remarkable illustration. But we need to be careful how we understand it. Let me put it to you another way. He mentions taking them out of Egypt. See there? Think of it this way. That was a historical act when the exodus from Egypt happened. And it, it was an historical act of God. And it can become a means of blessing. but does never of itself convey the blessing. That blessing only comes from obedience to the Lord. You see, sometimes we think, well, you know, I've been saved. Yeah, I got delivered out of Egypt. I'm, I know the story about the Passover lamb. I'm covered by the blood. I'm redeemed. Amen. How I love to proclaim it. 
And somehow we believe because of all that, and all that is true, if we truly trusted Christ, that somehow that we can just go ahead and sin against a holy God and his righteous character, and somehow he will treat me differently. And he'll treat my sin differently than it will be towards someone who is an unbeliever. God is still God. God hates pride in the believers as surely as he hates pride in the unbelievers. God hates lying among believers as much as he hates lying among believers or unbelievers. The fact is, we can a lot of times make the wrong assumption about God, and that's what they were doing. And that could happen so easily to any one of us. You have to understand your relationship to the Lord. Well, the last thing here is the intent of the Lord towards His people. Look at verses 8 to 10. There's five things here to help you understand what the purpose of the Lord is, the intent of God is toward His people. Sometimes we think, we get in our thinking when bad things start to happen in our lives that God's against us, that somehow He's going to wipe us out, that He's, he's punishing us. Well, put down these five things here. Look at them in the outline. First of all, he will punish the sinful kingdom. He will punish the sinful kingdom. It says, because the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful, sinful kingdom. In other words, you can't escape it. He's watching you. He knows what you're thinking. He knows how you're feeling, even now as you sit here. He knows whether or not you want me to move on to another verse because you're getting a little uncomfortable with what we're talking about. He knows every single thing that we think about and what we're hearing and what we're doing in our attitudes. He knows all about it. And he will punish the sinful kingdom. Secondly, he will preserve the remnant of his people. Look at He says there, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. He will preserve a remnant. That's worthy of an amen, I would say. He preserves the remnant of these people. I will not utterly destroy them. He will also purify. Look at what it says. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve. When you take a sieve, what are you trying to do? Get impurities out of the ingredient. You're sifting the flour. You're sifting the gravy. Whatever you're doing, you're running it through a screen so the mesh gets the impurities out. You want to purify it. Why is all this happening? Why all these judgments? Because he's purifying his people. Malachi says the same thing. If you read Malachi chapter 3, God is going to purify the sons of Israel so that they will learn to walk with him. Well, the fourth thing here is he will protect the godly remnant. He will protect the godly remnant. It's another farmer illustration from this farmer slash prophet. Look at the end of verse 9. But no pebble shall fall to the earth. He's talking about the godly remnant. It's being sifted. He's not going to let anything out of the sieve that is good, that he wants in the sieve. No, no pebble is going to mistakenly fall to the earth. He's kind of sifting them like corn is sifted. But he's not going to lose anything through the process. 
God's in control of all of this. And then lastly there, he will prove that he is a God of judgment and righteousness. Verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. God is going to prove that he is a God of judgment, that he is a God of righteousness, and nobody's going to get away with anything. We think today, oh, people are getting away with stuff. Well, they may be for the time period, time being, but ultimately they will not. They will stand before God and they will be held account for everything. Well, that all brings us to the last five verses. I mean, for three, for, for all these verses up to this point, basically nine and a half, nine and a half chapters in Amos, what have we been talking about? What have we been talking about? We've been talking about judgment, judgment, judgment. Here's why it's coming, all the reasons for judgment. The prophet's saying, get right with God, return to the Lord, repent. It's been kind of negative, week after week, been talking about how God is going to judge these people. Well, now at the end, we get some good news, amen? We talk about the restoration of Israel, the last five verses. I mean, aren't you glad that God is going to fulfill his word, that nothing is going to stop it? He's going to fulfill the promises. So what are these promises? You see here the restoration of Israel in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 9. This is probably some of the most amazing verses in Amos' prophecy. I don't know if you know this or not, but in the New Testament, when they were trying to decide what the church is, you know, Gentiles, Jews mixed up, this verse was used. Did you know that? We'll look at that in a second. Peter used this verse to prove that Gentiles are to be part of the church. Interesting. Learned some amazing things. So we see here the restoration of Israel. First point here is the place of worship will be rebuilt. Look at verse 11. We'll start with this. Two things are clear here in verse 11. One is that God's promise to David will be fulfilled. Look at what it says. In that day, in that day, this is coming, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. What's interesting here, um, the temple was still standing. There's a lot of books on Amos that say this must have been after the time of Amos and after 586 when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem because it says that the tabernacle or the booth of David has fallen and it didn't fall until 586. How could this 586 be, uh, be uh, before Christ, B.C.? So how could this end up in the, 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 the 700s B.C.? Well, there's a simple answer. He's not talking about the temple of Solomon, clearly. He's talking about this booth or tabernacle of David. The Hebrew word here is a very temporary dwelling, a booth. You could call it a tent almost. And it says the tent of David is fallen. What's he talking about? He's talking about what happened to those people who were recipients of the promises of God and turned their back on it. And the whole collapse of the messianic hope, everything. Well, he's going to repair its breaches. When's he going to heal it? Good question. He says, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Well, how are you going to build it? How are you going to do this? You have to understand, 
David had more people under his authority than any other time in Jewish history, including today. A lot of people forget that. The empire of Israel was the greatest, the most significant under King David. But listen, there is one coming, Ben David, the son of David, the Messiah, who will indeed fulfill the promise of God to David. In Psalm 89, 35, it says this, My covenant I will not break. Verse 35 says, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Notice he says, I will never lie to David. His seed will endure me forever. You could say it'd be the sand of the seashore, the stars of the sky. How is it? Did you ever ask, how is it that six and a half million Israelis, roughly the population, can compete with six billion people in the world? How is that ever going to happen? That would be just a landslide. How is it going to be fulfilled, that passage? Well, that's a good question. Turn to Acts chapter 15. I'll show you. Acts chapter 15, verse 13. When you're reading through Acts, a lot of people don't realize that in Acts chapter 15, verse 13, we see a quote from Amos, from the prophet Amos. How is, going, how is God going to fulfill the promise to David and have all these people, the seed of David, the sand of the seashores, the stars of the sky, same thing that he said to Abraham, how's he going to do this? When verse 13, look at what it says, Acts 15, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. James is the brother of our Lord. He's the, uh, by the way, the first leader of the church in Jerusalem. Yaakov is his, his Hebrew name. Verse 14 says, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, here comes the quote. Guess who he's quoting? See if you notice, verse 16. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles, look, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. What's he talking about here? He's quoting Amos, and the salvation of the Gentiles is going to fulfill the promise and the prophecy of Amos chapter 9. This booth or tabernacle of David is referring to God's remnant, whom God promised would be the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. He's going to fulfill it through the Gentiles all over the world, who are coming to know the Messiah. And Paul continues that in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 to 9. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 to 9 says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 8, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those 
who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. They who are of faith in the Messiah, who, the Gentiles, are the rebuilt tabernacle of David. Isn't that amazing? That's number one. The promise of David will be fulfilled. Secondly, God's power will accomplish it quickly. He says here, uh, I will raise up, close up. I will build it as in days of old. See here, God's power will accomplish this. It's God who does this. And secondly, you not only see a, a place of worship rebuilt, but you see a possession of the nations will be fulfilled. Look at verse 12. This is exciting. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. He mentions here only one because it's the least likely that the Jews would uh, believe. He mentions the remnant of Edom, which is Jordan. You could understand it to be today, Jordan. In other words, Jordan is going to be back under the control and hands of Israel. And Israel and Esau will be reunited. We know that Jacob and, and Esau have been separated, as you know. And now they're going to be reunited in the days of the, the Messiah. Praise the Lord. The third thing here is agricultural productivity. Not just a place of worship being rebuilt. The possession of the nations will be fulfilled. But agricultural productivity will be amazing. Well, we see that happening today. Look at verse 13. Behold, the days are coming. He's saying this will happen, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed and the mountains drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. He's getting all the stuff out of the field. They're plowing it again. There's so much productivity there. What do you see in Israel today? It's amazing. You see exactly that. So much treasure of, of, of greatness here. The mountains will drop. A, it says the hills will melt, overflow, flow with it. The fourth thing, the Jewish people will return from captivity. Verse 14, look at this. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. I will bring again the captivity of my people. Who's going to do this? Jewish people will return from captivity. I will, the Lord says. I will. The Messiah of this will is going to bring the captivity of my people, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities. How's that going? Have they done that? I was reading in one commentary, and they said, well, that's something that's going to have to happen in the future when the Lord returns, because you know, there's so much devastation, and that's such a, Israel's such a desolate area of the land. Uh, that's, that's not really meant as something that we're ever going to see. And I looked at the date in the foreword of the commentary, and it was written before 1948 <laughs> when Israel took back the land. Back when it was nothing but swamps and rocks and desert. Have they rebuilt? 
the ruined cities? They sure have. Keep reading. And it says they will inhabit them. Are they doing that? Yes, they are. Now, every day people are trying to take it away from them. They're trying to take back portions of Israel. But you know what? They're inhabiting it. It says they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Are there any vineyards in Israel? You bet there are. Some of the finest wine in the world comes from there. And amazingly, uh, they tell us that they don't have a lot of the alcoholic problems that we do in our culture because they, they drink in moderation, <laughs> something that our society doesn't understand clearly. And they make gardens and eat their fruit. Do you know that over 80% of Europe's fruit and vegetables come from Israel? Over 80%. God has fulfilled his world, his, his word here in our world today. Well, then the last thing that Amos says here, and this is just an incredible promise, an incredible part of the prophecy, in spite of all of their sin, of all their unbelief, God will be faithful to his promise. Amen? He'll be faithful. The promise of God, the last thing here, the promise of God will never allow them to be uprooted from their land. He will plant them in their land, verse 15 says. I will plant them in their land, and they shall never again be uprooted of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. He's done it. He's planted them there. There's nobody that's going to overrule his iron fist. That promise has what we call in Hebrew uh, idioms, a double impact, a double impact. On the one hand, it certainly does promise that nobody's going to pull them out of the land. That's for sure. But on the other side, the negative side, it has a negative side to it too, that the nations are going to continually try to pull them out of the land. So God says that they will stay there, but also that there will be continual attempts to rip Israel out of the land. Will they divide the land? Yes, they will, according to Joel. Will they eventually attack Israel? Yes, we've seen that. Half of it, Jerusalem will be taken eventually. The woman will be raped, children killed. It will be so bad that Israel will get to a point where they think, hey, we're cut off, we're lost. God has forsaken us. But guess who's coming to dinner, my friends? At that moment, when it looks like Israel will be pulled out of the land, the Messiah will come and destroy all the nations who thought they could overpower Israel. Because his promise was that they will never be uprooted out of their land. In spite, listen to me carefully, the summary of Amos is this, in spite of Israel's sin, in spite of Israel's clear unbelief and disobedience, there's one thing that's clear. God will be faithful to his promises. Understand this, our sin never negates the glorious faithfulness of God. Our sin never negates the glorious faithfulness of God. I'll leave with you one, two of my favorite verses, Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope we have in you and the glorious promise of our future together with you. And Lord, we pray for anyone who's really not sure of their relationship with you, that they may run to the Messiah, 
to his open arms before it's too late. That we might turn in faith, repenting of our sin, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins, the one who rose again on the third day, and the one who is coming again for us one day. Thank you that you're the faithful God. What you have said, you will do. And we want to praise you for that. And we ask these things all in the name, wonderful name of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.